The pursuit of happiness is a fundamental right guaranteed in the Constitution and defined in the Declaration of Independence to freely pursue joy and live life in a way that makes you happy, as long as you know how to use the laws to achieve what you want. This changes things a bit, doesn't it? This means that in order to do what makes you happy, you have to know some laws, and that's why I'm here. Welcome to Lovely, a show about law, love, and life. Live a happy life using the universal law of love at the heart of your decision-making. And of course, real laws too. I'm your host, Bahar Ansari, a hippie and happy lawyer turned IT founder turned, well, me, a consciously creative counselor. This show is built on one simple principle, that us as human beings do things for only two reasons, love, our ultimate self-fulfillment, or laws, natural and man-made. What transcends both is creativity. It's innovation. It's love empowered by laws. It's love. Be love, learn law, spread love. I'm so excited to have you on this show. I just want to take a moment to introduce you and talk about all of your accomplishments. So Banafshe is a pioneering civil and human rights attorney, an author, an educator, and a social entrepreneur. She has learned through her work how decisions we make globally affect us locally. She immigrated to the U.S. from her native Iran with her parents at the age of five and started her career as a professor of constitutional law at John F. Kennedy School of Law. And she has worked with the United Nations Development Fund for Women and was the director of the West Region for Amnesty International. She has also won several awards for her work, including the Fred Korematsu Civil Rights Award and was nominated for the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award. She's also been named the top 100 leading lawyers in California and top 100 most influential lawyers in California by the Daily Journal. She was also nominated for the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award in 2018 and received the Certificate of Special Congressional Recognition from the U.S. House of Representatives the same year. She's most known for her deep passion for people and for the Constitution. So welcome. I'm so excited to have you. I know it's been a while that we've been talking and trying to make this work, and I'm grateful that you're taking time on your beautiful vacation to spend with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me, and what a remarkable contribution you're making with your program and your podcast, Bahoja. Thank you. The contributions are really your story. So let's get started with some, you know, I was going to say basic stuff, but the most important stuff. You've spoken at conferences and events around the world, met with world leaders and thinkers and artists and activists, and you've dedicated your life to the realization of peace in your lifetime. And I know you speak very eloquently about that. We connect very much on our dream for justice and peace, which sounds poetic to a lot of people. But in my mind, it sounds logical and realistic, excluding humanity's greed. What has your journey been like in pursuing this dream of peace? Mm, So great. So the journey has been obviously multi-level. I mean, I'm talking to you right now at the age of 52. So at 52, my experience of realization of peace and peace in my lifetime is so different than my 30-year-old self my 20-year-old self in my teens. So we came to the United States in 1974, 1975, when I was about five years old. At the time, we were supposed to be here for a, a short time. I was actually supposed to be boarded in school in Europe, but we came to the United States because my mother had brothers who were international students in Los Angeles at the time. And we ended up staying because, well, she saw that The land is foreign, everything is foreign. And at that point, didn't feel that leaving her daughter at that age in a foreign country, whether it was Europe or elsewhere, it was an option any longer. So she had my father send money so that she can secure a place here in in the United States and send my brother along. (laughs) She said, send my other child too. That wasn't what he had thought was going to happen when he sent my mother and I on this uh, kind of journey. But that's what we did. And, you know, in hindsight, really, I think it was what saved us 
because we left well before the revolution. We were able to establish ourselves in the United States at a time when there weren't that many Iranians here yet, except for, as I said, people similar to my uncles who were international uh, students at the time at the universities. So we began. Yeah, the, the journey began. The first time I really saw and participated, literally participated in any peace-related, justice-oriented activism was during the time that all the students in Los Angeles were demonstrating against the shop. So this would put me at five, six, seven, eight, you know, this age group. And so all of my uncles and my aunts is what we would call them. They were all classmates of my uncles. They would have their demonstrations in Los Angeles at the federal building. And my brother and I and two other children, we, the four, you know, the four of us would play on the, on the grass while they were chanting things like, um, remember Vietnam, same thing in Iran, right? So I just, I remember that. And I remember inevitably because they wouldn't secure a permit for assembly. <laughs> they have the First Amendment right, but they still have to secure a permit to assemble and to demonstrate and to do all of that. They wouldn't do it. And so the police would come and they would all be arrested and they would all be taken in. <laughs> and I would sit there and wait in the kind of, not in the holding cell with all of them, but kind of outside waiting for another uncle or aunt to come and pick me up and take my brother and I home. So that's the first time that I ever experienced people using their voices and mobilizing for change. And they say your environment, which I think is really, really true. They say your environment and the conversations that you're a part of truly shape the trajectory of your life. And so in my home, the conversations were about this, you know, and similar, similar types of topics. When I was younger, the men would be in one side of the house, as you probably know, in our culture, and the women would be in another side of the house, and they would all have their own conversations. The women would be talking about whatever they talked about, usually not something that I wanted to be engaged in. But the men would be talking about the stuff I wanted to talk about, which was history and politics and what's going to happen and to human beings. And I have a father that at that young age would allow my voice to be heard. So even though I was nine or 10 or 13 or something uh, among these men and their conversations were very stern and talking about the issues of the day and history that led us to today, generally about Iran. I had something to say and my father would hush them in and allow me to say what I needed to say. I think that had a, a, a massive correlate to the trajectory of how I, I moved through my career. And if I were to just, just to say, I mean, you know, I went to, I studied political science, international relations. I don't think that's very unique. I think many people do who end up going to law school. And I chose to go to law school. I chose Tulane. Those were intentional choices because my uncle at the time was taken political prisoner in Iran. And we were beside ourselves trying to find him. He had actually gone disappeared for nine months. And then we discovered he was at, in Evin. Um, as you know, Amnesty International and other international organizations have called it the, one of the worst torture chambers on the planet. And so they held him for years. And that really altered how I thought I could assist. So I believe that if I had a law degree, I believe that if I had the knowledge of international law, that maybe I could be the advocate for, the voice for people like my uncle. And so I attended law school with that intention and chose Tulane because it's one of the universities in the United States that allows for dual track of civil law and common law. As you know, we're a common law country arising our legal system from Great Britain, as does Canada and Australia. And so the civil code, however, is the Napoleonic code. 
And that is that codified approach to law is what really the majority of the world follows. So I wanted to have that understanding of that, that dual system. And I came out of law school not wanting to practice law, didn't go to law school to practice law. I went to law school to learn the law. And so when it was time now to choose what to do with my life, I wanted to teach. And everyone that I spoke with just kind of would metaphorically pat me on the head and say, it's really sweet, but you realize you have to do all these things. And, and I got lucky. I was really fortunate. I was teaching, studying for the California bar and teaching for the California bar and happened to be teaching the bar at the time. And the dean of the law school was in the room where I was teaching. And I made mention about how in law school, they hide the ball and you don't learn anything because I was in the middle of it myself. Right? And that that's not what's going to happen now. I assured them that I was not going to hide the ball as their professors did, had them begin an exercise. And while everyone's head was down, the, the dean of the, of the school, of the law school asked me to step outside. And I thought for sure, I just lost my job. And, um, but really what he did is he offered me a job. And said, would you like to teach? And if you did, what would you teach? And I said, first of all, are you kidding me? And then secondly, I would teach the Constitution. And he said, why the Constitution? And I said, it's because the foundation of everything. It's where everything arises from. So I did that for the next two and a half years. And then 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, a former student of mine called me late at night and said a friend of his was going to be questioned for the third time by the FBI. And... That's when my work began. It was very clear that the calling literally came. I began representing these human beings and started the first human rights, civil rights organization for the Middle Eastern Muslim South Asian community. And so to answer your question, you know, the, the trajectory, if I were to go back to that child who was waiting in the Los Angeles prison facility waiting for somebody to come take me home because my parents and everybody else were now locked up because they were demonstrating without permits to sitting here at 52. I would say to you, the one thing that I'm really clear about is that peace exists where we are. And I don't mean this in a woo-woo meditative way. That's, that's not what I mean. I truly believe that when we look outside of ourselves, if we don't see peace around us, it, I believe it first begins with me. And so there's a lot in here that needs to get healed. Because today, what I see is I realize peace constantly in my lifetime, where I'm sitting in my lifetime, during my lifetime. And do I see things out there in the world, the injustices, the absolutely. And do they need to be worked upon? Absolutely. But I think the way that I do my work today, whether I sit on a board or I chair commissions or whatever I do, or I practice law, I do it a, a lot less stressed. I don't have the angst that I used to in my 20s and my teens and even in my early 30s. I don't have the sensation where everything is like charged. Do you know what I mean? And I want to, if I could go back to my teenage self and my 20-year-old self and even my 30-year-old self, I would say, take a deep breath and relax. Just take a deep breath, relax, and open your eyes and look around because there's more peace than there is non-peace. There is more human rights than there is not human rights. There is more people working in collaboration than in strife. There's more of us who are finding ways to find common ground rather than division and segregation and destruction. And then if we could start there, if we can actually start there where I am sitting, where you are sitting. And we do that, and I really mean this, we do that in our homes, with the people that we love. We do that with our colleagues, the people we work with, 
We do that on the street that we live on with our neighbors. It is inevitable that those actions do not have a domino effect. And yeah, I think that's the, to answer your question, a very long answer. I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be my answer is that it, it's taken its natural cycle and it's delivered me to a place now where I realize peace wherever I am. That's so beautifully put. I mean, having having the peace inside and not be triggered, that's what puts you in a creative solution thinking mentality versus lack and wanting to get in a fight and take sides because that's what perpetuates this whatever disagreement it's always usually a disagreement between two sides and it just perpetuates that when you choose sides and as attorneys you're kind of trained to see both sides but you're also trained to choose a side that that's how you you work and make money but bringing that peace and solution thinking and creative mentality is is what can help bring peace and solve these problems and the other thing that you said about about laws knowing the constitution is the foundation of everything and everything we do in life are governed by laws. So this, this knowledge to, to bring that knowledge to people with the understanding of how things work, laws essentially describe how things work or should work. And they do have a lot of positive aspects. I mean, in society, we're seeing the downfall of how it was misapplied by it. But in my mind, I always feel that this, injustice or misapplication of law is by the people in the system and not necessarily the purpose of the system itself. So taking this mentality of peace and finding that peace within, within your families, within your communities, and that how that could be reflected at a larger scale in society and the world is is a non-legal solution, but it's really the solution to everything. Well, I mean, laws are are what? They're just man-made doctrine rules. And then we add all these caveats, all these exceptions to those rules. Who does that? We do. And then we put them out there in the world after a group of people agree that we should put them in the world. Who are they? People. There's nothing nothing special about them. And then the rest of us, because now these laws have feet underneath them because they've been approved, right? They've been legislated. And now they have feet underneath them and they walk around our communities and our societies. And it's only when they start wreaking havoc, those rules and regulations that we say, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Maybe we should change a little bit of it here. It's all an experiment. Nobody knows how it's going to go until it, it, it crosses paths with who? Other human beings. So when you think about it, the entire thing is human to human to human to human. And I always say this, it's, It doesn't matter whether it's my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my husband, my relationship with my best friend, my relationship to my colleagues or my staff. Relationship is relationship. At the level of just in the house relationship or on the street relationship is the same kind of relationship that's happening right now in Israel and Palestine. It's the same relationships. They're just human beings not understanding each other or don't want to understand each other or have a a self-interest and they've got to be right. I mean, how is that any different than what happens in our households or on our streets with our neighbors, literally with the next door neighbors or colleagues at work? It's the same. It's, it's all the same. So then what do we try to do? Well, if we, if we legislate, if we put these laws together, then maybe people will act more civilized. There'll be some justice. There'll be some, right associated with it. I don't know. I, I honestly believe if we could just narrow it down to really what are the key issues, and that's why I said the Constitution was so important for me. What are the key issues? The key issues is the Constitution of the United States has mandated that many democratic, now there's going to be lots of discussion and, and debate on what's democratic. Let's just, let's just call a democratic system, one where a group of people who do not have the same viewpoints get together and rules and laws come out of it (laughs) because they can find common ground. A democratic society as this one is the, the essence of the basis of, and we have so far to go. We have so far to go in the American system. Started with 
we the white male Protestant landowners, correct? Like that's that was the the basis of the these pearls of wisdom that were going to come out and uh, embody and, and enshrine this country with, with its lavish words of rights and legalities. And it wasn't until they said, wait a minute, well, what about us? We're not white. What about us? We're not male. What about us? We're not landlords. We're not Protestants. We're not, right? That ultimately became we the people. We the people. But that we the people took something, right? It took all those laws that people put together with the caveats that made sense for them to go out into the world, wreak havoc on certain people, cross paths with people. And those people said, nah, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> this, isn't, this doesn't seem like it's made up in my interest. It seems like it's made up in your interest. And so today, if we were to come to today, one of my heroines, and she's not just my heroine, she was so many's, Justice Ginsburg, her passing, I don't know, I, I, I didn't maybe cry as much as I cried when my grandmother passed um, in, in 2019, but a fair amount last year in her passing. I mean, listen, so many laws, so many laws related to women's rights occurred in her lifetime because she said so, right? So what does it take? I think when you, when you take a page out of her life, if you take the page out of people who are true, true change makers, they're doing it in a systematic, deliberate, peaceful accord to be able to move this boulder up the hill towards peace for all. She's a great example. I mean, and it's, it's, it's hard to follow, but she really paved the way and opened the door for so many of us, for so many women, like not just change comes from diversity and authenticity. And I think I'll mention your book because your beautiful, your book, beautiful reminders from what I read about it. It's, it's teaching people to shut out the external voice and remind themselves of their true knowing. So that's where the authenticity comes in. Even to achieve peace, you have to achieve authenticity first. And then to have those authentic voices heard. Ginsburg said famously, women belong anywhere decisions are made, right? So to be at the table where decisions are made, to bring that perspective. I think perspective is so important. Like, taking into consideration the context of laws. And that's, that's all we do in law school, right? Read the context, what was happening? What was the backstory? You know, uh, science, religion, uh, social impact, everything to take that into consideration. And historically, that hasn't happened for majority of people. And we're at a crossroads because people like Ginsburg have gone in and brought in different perspectives. And ha that's how the shifts have happened. And now, it's at an impasse of some of those laws are, are failing <laughs> and should fail. They should fail because of this lack of authenticity, diversity, voices, perspective of people like you and I who, who weren't born here or weren't necessarily raised with exactly those traditional views, but we're the ones who are active, active in it right now. And we're the ones who are trying to bring change. So these are ways to bring our voices in. If we're authentic to ourselves and we haven't felt the need to lock those pieces of ourselves away, then change is really possible, even, even at tiny scales. Absolutely. And even that those tiny skills that you're talking about are scales that you're talking about, when you put them next to one another, they're massive. Yes. So it's finding... I always say it's finding your tribe, you know, and locking arms and moving the movement, the cause, the vision forward, even if it's one step at a time. And it generally is one step at a time. And having that, some of my colleagues and I over the years, we've talked about this often, where the goal is always to separate, you know, that's a women's rights issue. That's a Black Lives Matter issue. That's an Asian issue. That's an LGBTQ issue. Those aren't my issues. You know, my issue is Iran, or my issue is immigration, or my issue is the environment, or my issue, whatever. If you really look 
all of those issues are intertwined. All of those issues arise from the same place. And that's it's an equity conversation. And what, what would be possible if we were to start to link arms with all of those different areas that I just mentioned and so many more? And we saw that happen. And I would say really saw that robustly happen during the previous administration. That administration brilliantly brought everybody together who, who was cause-oriented on these, uh, on these matters. And what I hope for as we're going forward, especially in the United States, I'm in, I'm in Europe right now, right? And so, you know, when, when you're out of the country, Europeans look to see where do, where do you fall on the pendulum? On the <laughs> What's your political, you know, uh, slant? And so I lead with, I'm a human rights attorney. And then they're just like, oh, right. Okay. So what did you, it was in that last administration. What happened? Why did you guys let that happen? <laughs> they, then they feel more comfortable to share. But when you, when you start to think about what's possible for the United States and the youth that are coming, my husband and I were having, having a, a light lunch with two couples and they were in their uh, late twenties, early thirties. One couple was German. One couple was Greek and they were sharing about the work that they do in the world and the way in which they're moving through the world. So conscious, Bahajan. So conscious. Environmentally sound. Politically astute. Extremely connected. And, you know, obviously have been following what's happened in the United States, as everybody has. But when I, when I see the youth, and I see it's the same, I have the same experience when I'm in the United States with this next generation of 20, 30 year olds coming. There's just such a profound sense of awareness. And I know that this has now become, you know, the worst word that you can use, you know, they're so woke, but they're conscious, right? Like you should never be woke. (laughs) It's bad, (laughs) but they're so conscious and they're so intentional on what's happening from the clothes they're going to wear or not wear because of the apparel industry and the, you know, carbon footprint to how they're going to buy homes or not buy homes and do shared economy to what's happening clear over on the other side of the world from where I am, because we inhabit the same planet. So I don't know. I think you're one of those, you know, that those, uh, those, uh, that bring hope for the future. So in terms of their laws and how these laws are starting to need to need to fail, as you said, they need to fail. They're long overdue. They're antiquated in the face of the generations that I was just speaking about. They're antiquated. They're not, they can't last. They must transform to meet the time. It's the most impressive thing is, is this generation because of the unlimited access to information and technology that we had growing up versus having to go to the library and pull out an encyclopedia to check something. Now information is at our fingertips and it's really hard to ignore what's happening in the world when you see it so clearly. You you made fun of the woke, woke comment as you were talking about all I thought about was Mitch McConnell like making fun of these woke corporations. Well, if you give a corporation a soul and say you're a person, then so exactly. don't suddenly be surprised if they grow a conscious. So that's, right. that's, that's an right. interesting one. And that that's also right. shows like this authenticity and the peace within. If, if you're researching, you're kind of on this self-discovery journey to find yourself. And then you're thinking through uh, of ways of how you can contribute and bring impact and change. So these two combined, I'm really hopeful to like, even in my generation, the past four years, I was kind of hopeless, like as a minority woman, I grew up in Iran and moved here when I was 16. I consider myself brown. I know a lot of Iranians, you know, differ on that point of where white were this. I feel like I'm brown. I look brown. So I'll kind of fall in between. But I'm with you. I'm with you in terms of being a person of color. Absolutely. 
So this amount of connection, the global connection has expanded the perspective. Like we have friends from all over the world. We can connect with people from all over the world in seconds and know what's happening in other countries in seconds to understand how it affects us. Now, what we do with that is completely in our hands. And just looking at the makeup of Congress right now, just how many minorities are in there, how many women and how many younger people is an explanation by itself of why our laws are broken because they're disconnected from what the reality of of our country of the world is the 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 colorful makeup the the gender equality i mean i still read articles about (laughs) women having smaller brains and being more emotional like in decision making and in the 21st century how are you still perpetuating this that's not supported in science to say that you don't belong in the place of decisions because these laws would then benefit everyone and be out of the power of that one group. So I really think we're due for major, major upgrades within our laws. This is so great and very timely. There's a program out of the the University of Santa Clara in Northern California which um, is a Jesuit institution, you probably know. And it's between them and Stanford, they go back and forth, who's the actual Silicon Valley University. But a lot of folks have come out of Santa Clara and they have started a program this year or this, this term. It's the fifth of the cohorts that they have um, selected. They select 25 women from around the world who are executives in, in various fields. And they bring them together and they only do this twice a year. So 50 women in total. And they work with the women in preparing them to be on corporate boards. Because come January of this year in, the, in California and other states are now passing a similar legislation. Corporations, companies must have a, at least three women on their boards so that there is diversity so that there is inclusion. And, you know, there's study after study that when women are on the boards, the companies are engaging in less fraudulent activity. (laughs) Not only is that a positive for shareholders and others, but they also are more economically sound and their growth is exponential. So uh, this year, this for this cohort, the fifth cohort, I was honored to be selected as one of the 25 women. And I've got to tell you, Baharjan, I have, the last time I was this intimidated, (laughs) I don't even know when it was the last time I was this intimidated, these 24 women and our lecturers and our advisors are exceptional. They are leaders in name the industry as CEOs and presidents of large medical institutions to universities to, I mean, just tech, it just goes on. Banking, transportation, it goes on. And the the thought was before the law was passed in, in California, the thought was that we don't have enough qualified women to sit on boards. <laughs> and so that's why we don't have women on boards. <laughs> we just don't, they just don't, we don't have enough of them. They don't exist. Rather than we actually haven't opened the door because the truth of the matter is when we're talking about capital, when we're talking about these corporations and these, these companies, we're talking about power. And the people who are sitting in those powerful seats, making those decisions, have a lot of influence on how you and I will consume something, right, as a, as a, in the marketplace. And generally, they have been white, as they said, white, stale, and male. So <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's I didn't amazing. That <laughs> I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're all white old men who receive an income by being on a board, who receive a lot of other benefits because of who they're networking with. 
And those corridors and those conversations generally have been close to women, people of color. And if you're a woman of color, definitely <laughs> go, down, go even further down the line. And so, <laughs> so now things are changing in that prism. And if you start to just look out beyond this one example, going to the example that you gave so perfectly, that, yeah, when you start having more women in policy making, decision making, you have gender equality there, you have race equality there, you have religious equality there. When you start actually having these folks with their backgrounds and their viewpoints come sit together, I mean, truly, truly, you're magnifying the power of those groups, that group of people, right? I mean, that's the, that's the entire philosophy around masterminding, right? Having a, a number of people coming together on an issue. So why would you continue to just have more people like yourself around that table unless it's so that you can hold power, <laughs> you can hold uh, access to capital power. And this is this expansion, whether it's what's happening in Santa Clara and the laws that are passing throughout the, the, our state of California and then across the country and then really globally, or it's having more people come into DC. And I say, we have so, so many, interestingly enough, women Iranians who are running for office and they are winning. In 2011, I explored a race for Congress and decided that wasn't, that wasn't my thing. But there weren't that many of us doing anything like that, exploring, let alone running. And um, they're running and they're winning. So you start at the local and then you start moving yourself up to the federal. You ultimately can make massive change. And it's happening. I mean, it's impossible to put the shaving cream back in the can. It's done. Yes. And you have the side where the ones in power, white, male, and stale, I really like that. <laughs> I will use that, who are refusing to give a seat to anyone different from them there. But there's also the discouragement because of that and because of all of the activities that are repellent to a lot of people who would actually want to go saying, I don't want to go and become corrupt like them. And people right. staying out of it. So it's not necessarily the unavailability of amazing people. It's just their probably dislike of wanting to be associated with someone who won't listen to, to them. And you see this divide right now in, in the government. That's got to change. That's got to at some point change. The, the, the fight is being put up, you know, by, by tradition. And here is the future coming in and future wins. Like we're moving that way. It's just time and space, right? As, regardless of what's happening right now, we're moving forward. And if we can pivot just a little bit, then we miss the same destination. And that's the goal because we know that destination is not taking us anywhere attractive, <laughs> at least. You brought up the, this law of California, which is a great example of either culture effects laws or laws lead culture, this cultural growth. And I think that California law is a great example of it. And speaking about the U.S. Constitution, I mean, it's known in the world as one of the best legal documents. There are a lot of constitutions that have been modeled after the U.S. Constitution. But you've said something like months ago when we talked that's really stayed with me is that it's not the best one, even though we think it is. And there is a lot of inspiration in other places that we could take to improve ours. This administration has put together a commission to study like and to suggest any changes that should be made to the Constitution. I mean, I have a few of my own. For example, taking out anything with regards to race and gender, that was for identification purposes. We have retina scan right now. What's the point? What's the point of including all of this constantly on government forms or any other form if it's not meant to identify you as something different and treat you differently? So if it's for identification purposes, there's other solutions. So with your uh, experience, both practical and teaching theoretical, and of course, your creative and dreamy personality of wanting peace for the world, what advice do you have for right now for the commission that's been put together for this constitutional law reform with this administration? Who am I to really say what 
I'm not, I'm not in that room. I haven't been asked to be in that room. But if I were to have a moment, you know, have their ear for a moment, the South African constitution, the Indian constitution, they, they, the South African constitution received a lot of their influence from the Indian constitution. The Indian constitution received a lot of its influence from the American constitution. The American constitution, I'm not saying this just to say this right now. My husband, who's an American, hears this often from me. The U.S. Constitution blows my mind. I mean, just think about when it was written. Under what circumstances it was written. The forward thinking of those men that we still have the kind of governance that we do today. That the Constitution was probably at its most stressed the last four years in the last administration. And it rose to the occasion. I mean, it's just, I don't, I, I, I sometimes wonder who were they, those men, like really, like were they, did they, did they receive information from the future? Like how, how did they know, <laughs> how did they know to, to put those words in that way together? Now, is it missing some stuff? Sure. Like you just said, they, they foresaw as much as they could foresee. And it's exceptional what they were able to foresee. And there are holes. And that's what we saw in the last four years. There are ways to get around the laws. And if you want to, you, you can find it. And we, we were, it was evidenced that it's possible. And they never thought we would get to a point where someone would be talking about retina scans. I mean, like, what are we talking? <laughs> right? Like that, that was never in there. Or that now we're going into machine learning and artificial intelligence. I mean, we're talking, of, you know, my husband's company is talking about quantum computing. I mean, like, just, just, they didn't, they didn't have these. So what do we need? What do we need? I think we need, because it is so, a living, breathing document to continue to be a living, breathing document. Slippery slope, depending on who's in the White House and who's in the Senate and who's in the House. It's a slippery slope. Who, who makes up the justices of the Supreme Court? We're at a position right now that the Democrats are kind of running the show. And so if we're going to be making these changes, there'll be a time the Democrats are not running the show. And do we want the other party to come in and make their version of changes? So if I were to say, you know, what are some elements that I would say that are needed? Honestly, we could take a page or two out of the South African and the Indian constitution. The manner in which they have, now, before anybody starts, with, but they're not perfect and they haven't, they have all these issues. <laughs> I know they have a lot of issues and they're not perfect, but there's, there is a, a commonality in both of those two constitutions that I think hark to the, the, you know, we were, we were talking about this, the um, Universal Declaration on Human Rights, that there are certain rights that should be added that we do not have. I would say the right to housing. I would say the right to education. I would say the right to health care. I would say the right to clean drinking water. The certain rights that should be added to our constitution that are humane. We began talking about those rights and we said that these rights are non-negotiable rights, but we stopped short. And where we, sh we stopped short are those rights that lend to our humanity. Now, we have a faction in our country and we have always had a faction in our country that call those those rights that I just enumerated as socialists and communists. And so therefore, we shouldn't have to talk about them, set them aside. This is preposterous. Pulling yourself up from the bootstraps and all, right? If we had to do it, you should, that kind of thing. I, I think we need to reevaluate how we treasure capital, 
over humanity, how we treasure growth of an economy over the growth of the human being in the economy. And those would be the types of laws I would say need to be infused. I 100% agree with that. Those are all of the minimums that a human being needs to achieve this authenticity and self-actualization, being woke, conscious, whatever word that they use. You need to have the minimums of life met to be at peace. And the only thing I would add to the list that you said is the air we breathe, the environment. Because that's that's also something that we share. Absolutely. Absolutely, Bajan. I mean, the environment, absolutely. I'm in Portugal, And I was just reading that they are, they're about to close their last coal production factory. They just closed one and they just have one left. And when they do that, they'll be the fourth country in Europe that's meeting the environmental standards. And this is a little country, you know, but there are people, you know, everywhere we're driving, there's just these windmills everywhere. There's solar panels everywhere. And they're, definitely the air we breathe. And it's besides young people being activists right now and and really understanding what's going on, that's that's really heartwarming to see. It's also heartwarming to see the the technology companies advocating for human rights. I mean, you mentioned your husband and quantum computing, and I'm sure these are stuff that you guys talk about. I come from little bit of, I dip my hands in a little bit of IT and that's what my clientele is. And I talk to them all the time. There is this understanding and now there's a move towards developing and using technology for humanity. Like, should we develop it? How How does this impact humanity's life? How does it prolong it? How does it serve? And if it doesn't, it's not the fact that don't develop it. That's not the point, you know, where people might get scared and talk about complete control and socialism, and communism. That's not the point. The point is, when is a good time to see how these intertwine together? You know, we're always weaving and growing. How does it intertwine with the context of society right now? Do we need that level of technology or do we need that level of wealth when a kid is dying with because they don't have access to basic medical needs or food, just food out of starvation. So I, I see these types of conversations in advanced technology or space exploration. So it, it's just interesting to see this weave of, of yeah. perspectives come together to, to think a little bit more deeply. None of us know if it's correct or not. We might do this and we realize we're actually making you know the environment worse. But the, the point is, to be flexible and open to change and open to perspective and allow minorities and people with different mindsets to come in to bring these concerns, like whether it's on the board of these companies or the government, or I don't know, the patent office for some ethical review, like some mechanisms where these social considerations and just for humanity are taken into effect. Yeah. Well, you know, you touched on a a number of things. So Salesforce, right? It's CEO. Twitter, it's CEO. Multiple companies, tech companies have, have taken the, the lead. LinkedIn um, and, his C- and, and their CEO have taken the lead on people first, stakeholders before shareholders. There's a, there's a shift occurring, right, in, the, in, in these spaces. And you know, I've, I've become a big fan of capitalism through compassionate capitalism. And there, there's a, this, is, this is a few decades long, this capitalism philosophy. And ethical technology is real with machine learning and, and AI, as we were just talking about. I mean, it's, it's real. How are we collecting people's data? It's real. I mean, GDPR that was passed in in May of 2018 in Europe is going after these companies that are collecting their consumers' data and then they're selling it or they're doing whatever they're doing with it. Opt-ins <laughs> should, you know, you should be at default as an opt-out rather than a default in an opt-in, which is our philosophy in, in the United States. But, you know, California and Pennsylvania and other states are, are doing a lot on, on data privacy issues, which is part of the space that I'm in. And so that, that intersection of data privacy and human rights is, I think, 
fertile ground, <laughs> right? Um, when, when countries like the one that we were born in can uh, track a dissident by collecting their IP addresses and, and, and other data, that's real. That's real. And so I think inside of corporate capitalism and compassionate capitalism, I think we need to really put in more language around ethical technology with that, that, that intersection of civil rights and human rights. Because it's, you know, it, and it's not to stifle growth. It's to uh, make sure you have someone that has this diverse voice, just like women and people of color and everyone else we've talked about at the table, I think it's critical to have someone with the diverse voice of human rights and civil rights in that intersection to also be at that table to present that point of view. Like, have you thought about <laughs> what this really means, uh, the, the implications of it? So we keep saying it's a new frontier. It's a new frontier. Technology, it's a new frontier. It is a new frontier Every day, it's a new frontier. <laughs> I don't think we can even potentially catch up to ourselves in terms of how fast you know we're going. There are a lot of good people. There are a lot of smart people that are part of these conversations. Thank goodness. That's the intersection of data and technology, data privacy and technology and human rights is, is kind of what I've been passionate about for a few years. I'm not working in the area. It's just a passion of mine to read about. And I've tried to come up with my own solutions of how can we resolve what's happening, for example, with, with what Facebook's doing and what a lot of other companies are doing. I mean, data is the new oil. It's the new gold, whatever we want to call it. So kind of companies are going after each other for data, let alone people. So how could we resolve that within the current framework? And I like one of the solutions that I've been thinking about potentially is what if the Supreme Court were to expand the meaning of property under the Constitution, that the data you produce is your property. So if it's your property, if they just change the ownership from the hands of where you input it, but versus who created it, then it could provide an opportunity for people want to opt in and license their data to create some sort of universal income. Like you doing all of this gives companies opportunities for development, for things that it can monetize. So why not pay people for it? And then if you, if you do want to keep your privacy, you have the opportunity of opting out. And that's all within the current framework. But then the makeup of the Supreme Court And of course, the age of the Supreme Court also becomes an issue for them to understand how 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 technology really works in the how data actually is collected. Right, that literally the moment you you sign in, your IP address is collected. You know what cookies really mean and how they're tracking and collecting, like all of that's data. That's what the GDPR mandates. That your data is yours. It's your private property. And that that if a company wants access to it, they have to ask you for it and you have to you have to provide it. But the extra layer is that is the new argument that many have brought forth, which is what you just pointed to, which is if it's my private property. My data is mine, then just like my real estate, if you want to use it or you want to take it from me, you need to buy it. It should be the same. And, and or if you're not going to buy it from me, then give me some shares into your company. Have me in some way paid for, <laughs> right? Remunerate me in some way for my, my data property. And that sounds fair. I mean, I, I think the other big, big move that we're going to see is, is in intellectual property and creation and what creativity really is, what deserves protection. And I know all countries have their own and some of them overlap. And then you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that says your ideas and your creations are a human right. But in practice, maybe it's it's my lack of knowledge or experience. In practice, I don't really see how these actually work. I mean, we, we mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights being a global constitution. Like I, I think of a constitution as a well-respected document that's actually referred to and utilized. But to me, this one gets ignored, decisions get ignored, you know, not every country, whether they've 
their signatory or have ratified it or <laughs> are really following through. So in your experience, I know you have intellectual property side of your practice too. How do you see all of this kind of working together in the future? Well, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of um, that which you create is yours. I mean, that's why I protect my clients' trademarks and copyrights. Big proponent. I mean, there, there are, as you mentioned, I mean, there are treaties like the Madrid Treaty and others that are signatories to it, but then there are other countries that are not. China's not. So what do you do? <laughs> how do you, how do you uh, bring a group of people together? I mean, I think it, it's, you're really kind of full circling back to the beginning of this, uh, this interview. We really need to learn how to play in the same sandbox. Like some of the kids need time out. I know they do. <laughs> some of the kids, you know, play better um, and share better than others do. But it, it really goes back to that first part of this um, conversation that we've had, which is where does peace reside? And really working on those relations, you know, the international relations so that we so that we respect those laws, right? So that we can rely on that, those pieces of, of, of legislation, whether they're international or domestic. Yeah, I, I think we've been spending a lot of time on moving technology and company and blah, 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 blahs forward. And we haven't spent a lot of time moving our hum, the human side of ourselves forward. Do you know what I mean? And that's where we see the explosions that we see around the world. That's where we see the conflicts that we see around the world. When people can't even come together and find common ground or respect the laws and the, 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 the peace accords that they had, they had, those before them had agreed to. So in terms of trademarks, copyrights, intellectual property, patents, that's, that's not my area, patent law. It's like any other area of law. You, it's only as good as the ability to be able to protect. It's only as, as strong as being able to enforce. Um, it's only as effective as being able to receive a remedy if, if there's a breach. So what does that say? <laughs> it's, it's as strong as the people who believe in it, honestly. And, and it's, it's, us as human beings who bring balance to all of this because we write them and we put them and then we you said earlier we create exceptions and more exceptions and more exceptions and this is just growing but at the end it's us human beings whether it's international relations or local relations we always have a division some people fall on one end of the spectrum some people on one end of the spectrum and then we have a huge gray area in between that's literally just based on respect and relationships and communication so at an international level too, I understand that some countries are pointing fingers and say, you made it worse on the environment and you did this this many years ago and you did that that many years ago and you took a, And it's, it's always this dialogue of opposition and going back to tradition and past versus what's peaceful and fair now. We don't have to find justice by just looking at the now point and the previous point that actually puts us back in time. We can look to where we want to arrive that's fair to both of us and kind of balance the scale of justice on our way there. But that requires seeing further out, which requires perspective, peace, self-actualizations, you know, authenticity and investment in humanity, really just investment in humanity and humanity's development of, of thinking and peaceful behavior and culture. You summed it up beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better. You summed it up beautifully. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. I I reached out to you months ago, just when I was you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when all these thoughts were starting to really take over the rest of everything else that I was working towards. And now I feel like I've arrived in a place of better understanding and a place of better hope and like seeing where uh, our country can go and where I can contribute. And it couldn't come at a better time to have this conversation with you while I listen to the birds and the background of where you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly think I, I, I'm in a fairy tale right now. <laughs> I'm looking outside here. It just doesn't even look real. And yes, the birds are chirping and 
there's a soft breeze and every now and again, I don't know if you see the, the white, uh, um, what do you say? Uh, shears on the windows just keep coming in and I have to push them back out of the, the screen, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I found my bliss. Dreamy. My last question for you is Jana. for, for someone like me, for me or people like me who, who, want to do things, who want to bring change and, and who have this dream of, of realizing peace in our lifetime. What advice or kind of pointers do you have of effective ways to be active, to bring change, to, to be an activist in the right way? Yeah, such a great question. The first thing I would say, however hokey this is going to sound, but see if you could hear it in, in a practical way. Do not believe when people tell you it's impossible. That's the first. Do not. It may have not been possible for them. It may be an experience they had based on I don't know what, but it's not yours. So don't take on theirs. It's not yours. I was told, I can't tell you how many times I was told, what are you doing? I mean, up against the Bush administration, how, what do you, you're going to, what do you think you're doing? Like, these are joint terrorism task force agents. What, you're going up and up. You're, you, you line up to their navel. <laughs> Look, you're taking on this big guy. What are you doing? And I, I just, it, it, it just wasn't my reality. And what was my reality is, there are laws in this country and it's wrong. These are violations. It's just wrong. And if anybody knows, I know from the culture I came from, the, the background I came from, and that I used to teach the Constitution, for God's sakes. This is a violation at every level. And so the first is know what you believe in and do not believe when someone says it's impossible. Just let it go. The second is find your tribe. Like I was saying earlier, find people who speak your language. And I don't mean your mother tongue or, you know, the, the why you're here language. So I love people. I collect people. I, I, it's just what I do. Some people, you know, love Mother Earth and their, their movement is on the environment and thank God that that's what they're doing. And there are other people, it's about, you know, wildlife and whatever it is, children, whatever it is, find the thing, you know, as my grandmother used to say, God rest her soul, she would say, the world would be so warm if each of us knew which part of the blanket to hold. If we just held our side of the blanket, it would just cover the world and it would be warm. So find your side of the blanket, whatever it is, and find those people who speak your language. You know what I mean? You know, this part might be the, the dreamer in me. This part might be the money's important. Listen, I, I could not be here in Portugal looking out at what I'm looking at if I didn't have money to buy the ticket, to pay the whatever car rental and be uh, here. Money's important, but don't make your decisions solely based on that. Really. It's, I can't tell you how many of the people that I know who have reached a point in their career and they are wholly unsatisfied, completely unsatisfied. Okay, great. So I've got this bank account and I've got all these shares and whatever tech companies and what am I doing with my life? So don't make it all about money. The other thing I would say to you, really, really practical, if you don't think any of those are practical, see if you can get on a board. See if you can literally from a nonprofit board to if there's potential to get into a, a you know, startup board or advisory position. Why? Because especially in a nonprofit, those organizations need your skill sets. Collaborating with others, moving, moving agendas forward. There are skill sets there that you're going to pick up that you can't even, I can't even quantify for you right now. So those would be some practical things. 
And last, I would say, find your voice, whether it's in the arts, whether it's, you know, literally um, on stage somewhere, you know, with a, with a microphone in your hand, um, or it's writing, right? Videos, whatever it is, find your voice and get your message out there. My God, I mean, there's a plethora of ways today that you could get your voice out there. But find your voice and don't stop talking, creating. People are listening. We couldn't end on a more beautiful note. Telling stories. I mean, storytelling is an art that's been lost for a while. And I think finding our voice and telling our stories or anybody else's is, is what's going to expand our understanding, our perspective and our consciousness to bring real change. And with that, my lovely friends, I will leave you with some advice. Dream big, be brave and be happy. I'm already proud of you. Thanks for listening to Lovely with me, your host, Bahar Ansari. If you like this show, please subscribe and share with your friends, colleagues, and family. And please leave a review on iTunes. If you miss me before then, check out baharansari.com or connect with me on social media. Join us next week when we talk more about laws, love, and life. See you soon. <laughs>